Have you already introduced everyone? No. 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 All right. So I am uh, Trent Smith. I'm the NASA Veggie Project Manager. This is Ralph. What do um, you do, Ralph? Uh, gee, I don't know. I'm, I'm uh, Ralph Fritchie. I'm the space, crew, uh, space Crop Production Manager for NASA here at Canyon Space Center. So it's managing the project overall. And I'm Joya Massa. I'm one of the plant scientists here at Kennedy Space Center. So today we're going to split you into three groups and we're going to take you kind of to three different spots for about 15, 12 to 15 minutes each. Um, you can ask questions for us and then we'll just uh, rotate you so you get to see everything. Welcome to Moonshot. I'm Christopher Lawson and this is our final episode, part three of our NASA series. And today we're talking about food and specifically the food that we're going to eat when we go and live on the moon or even further on to Mars. And the staff at NASA's Kennedy Space Center were kind enough to give us a tour of their facility where they're experimenting with different crops that we'll be able to one day grow in space. So this is our controlled environment chamber area. So we have a number of walk-in and reach-in controlled environment chambers where we're doing plant experimentation. Um, we also have this area over here called Greenworks where we're, we don't bring tours in there um, anymore because we're trying to keep it from getting contaminated with insects. <laughs> um, but we have like preliminary research gets started in there and then when we have opportunities, we move them into these chambers. So we'll look at some of the chambers and then talk about some of the research. NASA staff at the Kennedy Space Center are spending a lot of time thinking about the types of food that we might be able to actually grow in space. And the reason for this is that as we start to explore more of the solar system, we just won't be able to take enough food with us for the journey. But if we can figure out how to grow our own supplies then humans will be able to live in space or on foreign planets like Mars for extended periods of time. So this test is actually an exchange with the Russians. We've been doing a crop exchange with our counterparts in Russia at the Institute for Biomedical Problems um, because we have good candidate crops and they have good candidate crops and we wanted to figure out how to get a better suite of candidate crops. So uh, some of the plants in here have already been harvested and we're replanting. But some of the plants, like the plants in the back, are Russian peas that we've been testing. And you can see there's quite a few pods on the peas in the back. We also have a dwarf tomato and pepper varieties that we grow here. Um, I think, yeah, I think that's all that's over there right now. We've been doing leafy green crops on the other side, so those have already been harvested. NASA's experiments are in these temperature-controlled environments where they're running a bunch of different tests to see what varieties of food will grow best in the space environment. When you think about the vegetables that humans enjoy growing and eating on Earth, crops like tomatoes, peppers and beans are among the most popular. Plants on Earth thrive because our conditions are perfect for growing food. We've got great soil, we have the right weather, and we have plenty of water in which to keep them alive. But in space, things won't be so easy. Not every crop will work in the space environment. Some will be affected by UV conditions, others just won't like the soil on the surface of a different planet. We also don't know how much water we'll even have access to. And so we need to figure out which varieties are actually going to grow. 
And all these controlled environments are trying to mimic what the conditions are like on the space station, because NASA thinks that the conditions on Mars or on the Moon, in the controlled habitats that we'll have to live in, will be very similar to the conditions experienced on the space station. You know, we have very high carbon dioxide, over 3,000 parts per million on average on the space station, or around 3,000 parts per million. But other than that, it's sort of a room environment. 22 degrees Celsius, 23 degrees Celsius, um, 45 to 50% relative humidity. It's pretty comfortable to, you know, a normal room environment. And in fact, that's what that room generally runs over there. The CO2 just tends to be a lot higher on space station when you have people living and working and exercising all the time. Is that good or bad for crops? Well, plants um, respond, you know, to CO2 by doing photosynthesis. And so the more CO2, in general, the more photosynthesis that you have. But, um, you know, what, that's one of the things that we're really testing because some varieties grow faster under increased levels of CO2. Some kind of grow about the same. And some varieties we've found actually do worse under elevated CO2. And so that has to be one of our selection criteria for our new crop testing. And so that brings us to these chambers here, which are our new crop test chambers. Um, so you can look in here. And it's at this point that I actually got to have a good look through the window of one of these chambers. And as you peer through, you see a bunch of different crops all growing under simulated UV light. Each crop is part of a different experiment, testing things like how they receive water, what levels of light they need, and which variety will produce the best yield in these conditions. And so these are some of our top candidate leafy green cultivars or cultivated varieties that we've been working with. And what we're doing with this test is we're looking at the effects of adding far red light to the growth. Far red light, um, it's, it's, a, it's a, you know, beyond the red in the spectrum, so it's around 720 nanometers um, bandwidth for the radiation level. And it's not a light that plants use as much for photosynthesis, um, but it can be used through a complex of pigments and plant leaves, and it penetrates leaves more deeply. So you get more far red, for instance, if you're inside of a forest, you get light that's enriched in green and far red because the overhead canopy is taking out the red and the blue um, and using that more quickly. And so the green and the far red penetrates, but it can also be used by those plants that are growing underneath the forest. And so we are interested to see what impact that has on the growth of these leafy green crops. Far red is also a way that plants measure things. They look at the ratio of red to far red light in their environment and it guides plants on how to grow. Should they grow taller? You know, if you're a plant that's shaded under another plant, you're going to be getting in a light environment enriched in far red. That will actually spur you to grow taller. So it, it can be a very important signaling wavelength of light for plants. So we're interested to see what it does on these crop plants and if it's something that we should add to the environment or not. We're not just interested for how the plants grow. We're interested in how nutritious they are and how delicious they are, organoleptic characteristics. In testing food for taste, NASA is really trying to make sure that by modifying crops to fit space conditions, that they actually still taste good. 
because good tasting food will improve the overall experience of space travellers, especially when we live in space for longer periods of time. And we also know from crops on Earth that selecting for particular characteristics like size or colour can dramatically change the flavour. So it's all about finding the right balance. So a lot of the work that we do when we're selecting crops is we send things off for microbial analysis um, to look at food safety. We send things off for chemical analysis to look at the nutrient content of the crops. And then we send things to Johnson Space Center where they have the taste lab, where they actually have astronauts and other people at Johnson Space Center taste testing different items before they get flown into space. And anything that gets approved for spaceflight has to be very palatable. It has to be pretty high rating on, on a hedonic rating scale. Um, so we send our crops there and they do taste tests. And when it comes to things like taste, NASA are really interested in getting a good cross-section of responses because taste is incredibly subjective. Some people hate tomatoes, for instance, but the overwhelming majority of people on Earth really enjoy them. So when you're trying to decide, well, what are the best conditions to grow your plants, the best light or the best fertilizer, well, how do you define best? You know, is it the biggest? Is it the most nutritious? Is it, you know, so all of these things have to be factored in. So a lot of what we're doing with new crop testing is trying to determine a suite of candidate crops that will grow well in the spaceflight environment and that are going to meet some of these, you know, needs for the astronauts. And this is a really cool um, part of our program, this new crop testing as well, because we're working uh, with students to help select the crops. So we have a collaboration with the Fairchild Tropical Botanic Garden in Miami. Uh, this is a botanic garden that has a big education and outreach program called the Fairchild Challenge. And together they've developed a program called Growing Beyond Earth, you know, with, with this garden. They, they kind of came up with the idea, we feed them information, and they are now getting middle school and high school students to grow plants in their classrooms under specially designed light racks and then feed those data to us to help feed into this type of a testing. So they're doing the down selection from hundreds of varieties of crops and then we get their best candidates and we test them here in our chambers. So it's a really, really great way to... Um, huh? It is exactly crowdsourcing. Exactly. Yeah. And we'll be back with more in a moment. Welcome back to Moonshot. I'm Christopher Lawson. And before the break, we were on our tour of Kennedy Space Center's Crop Lab, where they're experimenting with different plants that might be used to grow food in space. And Joya Massa, a plant scientist at the Space Center, was showing us where they experiment with these different crops. And not only are the actual plants subjected to space-like conditions, but NASA is also blasting radiation at the seeds to see what changes it makes to the plants. So in the very first chamber, they're still very small, so we don't need to peek at them, but we have plants that have been, um, the seeds were subjected to simulated galactic cosmic radiation. So NASA has um, a simulated space radiation capability at the Brookhaven National Laboratory, 
And so one of the concerns for space is what are the impacts of radiation on seeds and on plant growth? You know, and are plants that's more vulnerable maybe after the seeds have germinated? So we have a scientist, Dr. Ye Zhang, with our group, and she's been working um, to take seeds of our candidate crop species to Brookhaven National Lab and irradiating those with simulated galactic cosmic radiation and solar particle events. Um, and then we're growing those, and so we'll peek on the way back just in chamber A there. Um, those plants, um, you know, we'll look to see what kind of weird weird effects the radiation might cause in the plant growth, or maybe there's no effect and maybe the plants are really resilient to it. But this is something we need to know and understand because it will, you know, help direct how and where we grow the plants and how many seeds we might need to bring. You know, maybe if we, we only get 75% germination after radiation on the way to Mars, well, we need to bring more seeds to make sure that we have enough to support the astronauts. If you've ever tried food on a plane, you'd know that at altitude, it never quite tastes the same as what you'd have on the ground. Airline companies spend an awful lot of time tailoring food specifically for the conditions at altitude, and it's the same for space. NASA has pioneered a huge amount of food technology that we take for granted, such as freeze drying. And as we move towards these longer space missions, NASA is always looking to make sure the astronauts have the best experience they can and get the most flavor out of their food. Yeah, so astronauts experience what is called fluid shift. And so what happens is, you, you know, your heart is trying to pump the blood up from your feet, but there's no gravity pulling it back down. Here, gravity's pulling it back down. There, it's just pumping the blood up. And so you look at photos of astronauts in space, they often have kind of puffier faces. And that's because they're, they're sort of retaining fluid in their head. Um, and so many astronauts, not all, but many have said it's kind of like having a head cold where your sinuses, you know, don't allow you to smell and taste as much as you would back on Earth. Um, so they like stronger flavors and spicier flavors. So they'll bring up big bottles of Tabasco and Sriracha and put it all over their food. So one of the, the things that we're working on a crop for space is a hot pepper. So, you know, we think a New Mexico chili pepper um, will be very desirable in that environment. I mentioned earlier that NASA was testing different types of watering methods to keep plants alive. And it turns out that watering those chili peppers in space is a pretty big challenge due to microgravity. There are many videos on YouTube of astronauts giving demonstrations of how water behaves on the space station. It kind of floats and bubbles, so delivering that water effectively to a plant is really challenging, and it's something that NASA is very focused on. Water and air don't mix in space, you know, and you've all seen like water forms kind of a ball. If you inject little air bubbles in, you get one giant air bubble in the center. You get kind of a, a shell of water around a bubble of air. Now plant roots need water, but they also need oxygen. They're respiring just like us. And so without good fluid mixing in space, your plants either tend to get kind of a flood or a drought environment, right? They're getting too much water and not enough water. So delivering that water 
along with the air and space is really challenging. So what we have here, we have four different methods for delivering water and nutrients. And in the back left corner, that is a terrestrial method. This is called nutrient film technique or NFT hydroponics. And it's kind of a standard in, in some of the hydroponic industry uh, where you have a thin film of water flowing down a slope over the roots and the water has fertilizer salts dissolved in it. So some of these other approaches are trying to figure out a, an approach that would work well without gravity that could be similar to the NFT. And so we have these four different water delivery test beds set up to collect a lot of data on how the plants are growing. We're growing a dwarf tomato variety in here right now. Um, this is red robin tomato. It's a variety we hope to grow on the space station in a couple of years. And we have four different types of water delivery. One that's kind of an on-demand system where there's a soil moisture sensor in either a foam or a solid substrate and there's a, a water delivery so water gets pulsed in there when the level of the moisture sensor drops. Another in the front here is called a porous tube nutrient delivery system and this is where water is passed through porous ceramic tubes and it's slightly pressurized so you get a thin film of water and nutrients on the surface of the tube and you can imagine the roots growing around the surface of this solid ceramic tube kind of like a chia pet right but it's actively pushed in there and this is great from a reusability standpoint which is something else that we have to think about because we need to be able to harvest the roots off of those tubes and you know reuse them and then in the very back it's another porous tube system but this one is passive where the porous tubes are just collected connected to a reservoir of water and nutrients and it's passively allowing the plants to suck through the porous tube. So we're looking at these different approaches and so far all three of these are fairly promising. Um, so we're hoping to figure out a good method for being able to deliver food, you know, routinely in space um, using these types of approaches. Which, uh, which crops have you actually tried in space, in the space station? So, so far on the space station, we've mostly grown leafy crops and we've grown them in a piece of hardware called Veggie that I'll show you next. Um, and Veggie is sort of a small growth chamber that the astronauts can kind of use as a garden. Um, we're growing them in not a very sustainable system right now. It's called a plant pillow, which is sort of a grow bag for space containing a solid substrate and a fertilizer that slowly releases nutrients over time. And so we've done lettuce, we've done Chinese cabbage, we've done Mizuna mustard very recently, um, and some you know other leafy varieties that we're looking at, a red Russian kale, an extra dwarf pak choy, a wasabi mustard. Uh, we did grow a flowering um, crop, I guess you could call it a crop, of zinnia. We had flowers in space, you know, and the astronauts grew some flowers. And we have some pictures of some of those over there. Um, but we are still working on growing fruiting crops in that hardware. The Russians have grown peas and um, other fruiting crops, things like wheat or barley. And we've done wheat in other types of hardware as well. Uh, as well as some model plants that will grow quickly from seed to seed. But we want to do the tomatoes and the peppers very soon. So if you come over here, I'll show you the veggie hardware. We were then taken over to the veggie unit, which is being used on the space station right now to experiment with crops. 
It's kind of a weird little growth chamber with UV lighting that can be expanded based on how many crops are being grown. Each plant is planted into a tiny pillow, and NASA is right now testing how to keep production constantly flowing, and they're doing that by rotating different crops, and measuring both how much food they get, and how much time it would take for the crew to manage the production. You might also be wondering, do the plants grow differently in a low-gravity environment? I mean, there are a lot of cell-signaling things that go on in the absence of gravity. Plants recognize there's some stress, there's different genes that are turned on and off. But surprisingly, the plants grow pretty similarly if you can get the environmental factors similar. And so again, the water is really the big one that we're dealing with. Trying to get similar water between flight and ground is kind of a challenge because it just behaves so differently when we have natural convection down here. Up there, you don't have any natural convection. We have to have forced convection to move air and move water. But we can get the light similar. So if we can get the airflow and the water pretty comparable through engineering of the hardware, then the plants grow pretty similarly. Yeah. Is that, is that a concern at all for things like a tomato plant? Definitely. Yeah, tomatoes take a lot longer to grow. Um, you know, and so chances of having an, a, a malfunction in your, in your environmental system would increase the risk to that experiment because you need at least 80 to 90 days to start to produce, you know, tomatoes from that crop. So, um, you know, anything longer is harder. Leaves are easy, but fruit, fruit are a bit harder. Um, but, you know, in general, if we can get that environment good and get all the engineering straight, then the plants will do pretty well. I was just thinking that the fruit would be sort of floating around. Or... Oh, yeah. No, I mean, I think without gravity, it might even be a bit easier because the plant doesn't have to maintain the weight of the fruit. But pollination is something else we have to consider. We don't have bees up there. So we need to have the astronauts kind of be able to pollinate the, the flowers to make sure that the fruit are ready to go. And after this short break, we'll find out a bit more about why NASA are so keen to get plants growing in space and why it's going to be vital for our future space endeavours. Welcome back to Moonshot, and next on our tour at NASA, Ralph Fritchie, who is the production manager for Space Crops, wanted to give us a little more context as to why the team are so focused on growing food in space. As I mentioned at the top of the show, as we go deeper and deeper into space, we may not be able to take as many supplies with us, so we need to be able to grow our own food. And one of the issues that Ralph sees is to do with redundancy. When humans are on the space station, they're not that far from Earth. Even on the moon, we're not really that far away. And in a worst case scenario where the crew could run out of food, NASA could always send another rocket with supplies. But once we go deeper into space and onto Mars, sending replacement food just won't be an option. I think probably most of you know that when it's come to feeding crews in space, everything to so far that we've done has been shipping it up from the ground, right? And it's important to add with that that there's another philosophy, and that is when things break in the space station, you ship up 
spare orbital replacement units. You take out a failed system, you put a new one in. And when you're working on the space station, you've got a, a staffed ground control capability 24 hours a day monitoring this stuff with all the systems with the data they have. And if something goes wrong, they use astronauts as technicians to either solve those problems or conduct experiments. So when I move to this extreme, going out to Mars, everything changes. Um, communication between the ground and the Earth is virtually instantaneous. If I'm talking about the moon, it's about two and a half second delay. If I'm talking about being on Mars when the Earth and the Mars are their furthest distance from each other, you're looking at 44 minutes time, right? So what does that mean? It means that, first of all, food you send up, uh, instead of having a few months, six months shelf life that it needs to have, now it's got to last up to three years. Uh, imagine anything that you keep in your fridge for three years. Um, probably not good. Um, and you've got the fact that certain key nutrients, vitamin C, a couple of the B vitamins, potassium, they start to degrade over time. So we're at the, we're at the hairy edge where the food system is not going to have its optimal nutrition for the return journey, right? And you're also looking at a menu that was planned, you know, a year or two in advance. There's no fresh food that's gonna be, once you've consumed whatever you took with you, it's gone. So there's this multifaceted need for doing supplemental crop production. It's, we're targeting some of the key nutrients that the food system will lose over time. And we're adding variety to the crew diet. And we're also giving the psychological benefit of having something living in the sterile environment that you're gonna be in for all this time. So for the near-term work, that's our mantra. It's kind of actually trying to supplement the crew diet for these longer missions. You may have noticed a trend in the type of food that NASA is trying to grow in space. Lettuce, peppers, tomatoes, they're all crops which are easy to harvest and easy to consume. Although Ralph says that once we have established bases on the moon and Mars, that we'll be able to spread out a bit more and grow crops which require preparation. That also means that when you get to that point, theoretically you can reduce some of the supply, resupply mass that's food related and become more self-sufficient Earth independent. Okay. Um, now I talked about distances not only being for how you manage the food, but the hardware as well. So as we start going further away, we now have to look at how we actually design our food system hardware. We have to make sure that, for example, it's more repairable, that if there are systems on board that hardware, pumps, fans, etc., that they're more easy to access for the crew. Um, because of Gateway, that strategy, the fact that the Gateway is only going to be crewed for about 30 to 60 to maybe 90 days at a time, and we want to maximize the research we can do there, they're planning an intravehicular robot system on Gateway. Ralph has mentioned Gateway a couple of times, and I think it's important to spell out what it actually is. When NASA go back to the moon, the plan isn't to build a base directly on the surface, at least in the first instance. The plan is to build a small space station, or Gateway, that will orbit the moon. From there, crews will be able to stay for short periods of time to run experiments in space or head to the moon's surface, and it will also be a stepping stone for astronauts to head on to Mars. So when the crew's not there, 
there will be some robotic control that will go and service different payloads. So we're looking, how would we interface with that? It may be that before astronauts come, uh, we want to start up a plant growth cycle so that when they get there, there's something there. Now, they're not going to need it for food at the gateway because of the short durations, but what we're looking for the gateway for is to really serve as a research platform to see what is the radiation environment away from low Earth orbit in the Van Allen belts, the protective layer that we have that keeps us alive. What does that do to the germination of seeds and the development and growth of young plants? So, we're doing a lot of research here, and if we can only do it for 30 days, once a year, that's a lot of time before I can really understand what's happening. So if we can use the intravehicular robotic capability to kind of, you know, get more growth cycles out of it, that's to our advantage. Um, so a lot of the research we're doing here will eventually turn into what kind of crops and what kind of systems do we bring with us when we go to the moon and Mars. Many people will have read The Martian or seen the movie. And one of the key plotlines in the film in particular involves growing potatoes. And for Ralph, it was the Martian which really encouraged him to get into crop production. So my background has nothing to do with plants, nothing to do with any of that stuff. I, was, uh, I worked shuttle payloads, and then I worked building the space station, and then came to, to using the space station. If I wanted to stay in this organization, it was like, we have to use it. And then just so happened in my turn in projects, somebody said, hey, we're going to get into crop production. It was like, no one knew what that meant then, you know. And so Martian comes out. I did not want to read that book. I was like, no way. This is sci-fi stuff. I don't. And um, Buzz Aldrin lives in Satellite Beach. And uh, Trent, he has me go over to Buzz Aldrin's thing. The first thing he Buzz said, so have you read The Martian? I was like, crap. So I went back and read it, and that kind of actually spurred the whole thing in, in some way. So. Our final stop on the journey was to Trent Smith, who is the project manager for Veggie at NASA. And Trent was keen for everyone to know how trials of all this technology are actually done in space. So here's the process. Researchers first submit proposals, and if selected... They will come to this NASA building and plant their seeds in the veggie pillows, ready to be added to the payload for the next trip to the International Space Station. Once in space, though, things are a little bit different, because the researcher won't be there to run their own experiment. Experiments are run by the astronauts, who may not know anything about a particular project. So the team tries out all the processes before they actually go to space. We're going to have someone called a pseudonaut run the experiment. And that person is not familiar with your science. They're typically not familiar with the hardware. And they're going to read the procedure and they're going to implement the experiment. A pseudonaut. Yeah, put that on your LinkedIn. Uh... So the pseudonaut will run the, ex- the procedures and we learn that we don't write procedures quite as good as we think we do. And actually, we at Marshall Space Flight Center have a uh, team of folks that help translate our procedures into astronaut ease. And so our pseudonaut will read the crew procedures and execute the procedures. And they have ground support. We're typically here making sure that, uh, like, oh, well, this is what we meant, and then we'll redline the experiment. So we actually get operations and science out of the EVT and the time. And again, we harvest the uh, the pseudonaut, will harvest, implement it, and preserve the plants, and at the end, there's actually, uh, we'll stow them just like you're going to do it on space station to make sure that the science that you're going to get on space station will actually meet what you need to do. Once the experiment is sent to space, the team at NASA bring the researcher back in to run a simulated experiment on the ground 
which matches all of the processes made by the astronauts in space. They do this on a two-day delay, so that if the astronauts experience problems, the ground crew have time to then mimic those same processes on Earth to see if they can learn from anything that happened in space. If, we, if the uh, CO2 went up or down, we're able to match it. If, uh, you know, if the astronaut added too much water, we say, okay, how much water did you add? Okay, and then we can match that. And so it gives us time to find out what happened on station and then replicate it on the ground. That way, the only variable is gravity. Trent also says there are huge psychological benefits from having the astronauts grow food in space. Not only because it gives them something pleasant to look at, but it also gives them a real taste of being home. Imagine being on a plane for six months, right? And you're having the same food, pretty good food. The, the food is actually quite good that they get in space. It's a two-week rotation, <clears throat> but no one goes to space for the food, all right? Let's be honest. And there's wires and cables and plastic and metal. Uh, and then you have this little garden, this green plants that you're growing, right? And that's the smells and the to- taste and touch of Earth. And so that's your garden. That's, that's your reminder of home. Because you can see the green and the blue. You're right there. You can see it quite good. Uh, but you can't experience it. And so having that little uh, reminder and touch of home, I think it's pretty powerful. And then if you think about this, now you're on the moon or even on the way to Mars. And that blue marble that, you know, everyone that you've ever heard of or known or loved or any plant that you've ever heard of evolved there. And now it's getting smaller and smaller and smaller. So how important might those plants be then for your morale? Many thanks to NASA's Kennedy Space Center for allowing us to experience the incredible work that goes on there. This episode of Moonshot was hosted and edited by me, Christopher Lawson. Music in this episode from Breakmaster Cylinder. And our artwork is from Andrew Millist. We'll be back in a week with another episode of Moonshot. And stay tuned in the next couple of days for a trailer for a brand new podcast series we're launching. We're really excited about it. It's been almost six months worth of work. So keep your eye out for that one coming in the next few days. Thanks for listening to another episode of Moonshot. I'll speak to you next time.